0: This morning, uh, we will be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So that should be, if you didn't bring your Bibles, you can find that in the Bibles provided under the seats on page 837. In this passage, we are going to find ourselves confronted. Jesus asks us about the state of our being, our health as it were. If you've been with us through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark, then you've encountered a variety of times in which Jesus has reached out to somebody, and he's healed them, he's touched them, and made their bodies whole. He's restored them. Here he has something different in mind, though. Like our passage last week with the paralytic, Jesus is not concerned first and foremost with the body. He is the diagnostician, is concerned with the overriding sickness which we feel. Jesus asks if we are humble enough and aware enough of our sickness and our need. His original hearers would have been shocked to find themselves in the sickbed. But if we will accept it and admit it, we'll find that Jesus has come to us compassionately and come for us, and that he provides in his own person the instrument for the healing that we need. So let's take a look. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners." As we begin today, we can make some preliminary notes about what's going on in our passage. Uh, This passage is linked geographically to the one that came before it. So we find that in last week, in Mark 2, uh, verse 1, that Jesus was in the fishing town of Capernaum. He appears to still be there. And as word began to spread about him, he found that because there was a home associated with him, with his people, uh, he did not have the ability to move around as much. People were aware of where he was and where to find him. And we saw in last week's passage some minor demolition work and some major theological work as people dug through the roof to get Jesus or to get to Jesus such that he could heal their friend. But we find he can do more than just that. He can actually forgive sins. So now we find that. Some time has passed, we're not sure how long, but Jesus in the same town is now walking beside the sea. And so still in this fishing town, Jesus uh, begins to preach of the kingdom of God. Now, we're told earlier in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' mission, in a sense, was to preach the gospel in many towns surrounding Uh, So we don't know if he's on furlough or what's going on, but we know that he is stationed back in this adopted hometown, uh, and here he finds himself teaching again. He's not breaking from his mission. In fact, not to get too inside baseball, uh, but in verse 13 when it says that a crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them, the Greek construction here would actually be that he was continually teaching them, or he was habitually teaching them, meaning that this isn't just some time where Jesus decided, I'm going to teach to this random crowd of people that is gathered. It means every time a crowd gathered to, te- to Jesus, he opened his mouth and he taught them. And so we find that he's not primarily some sort of miracle worker who's charismatic and has a few things to say. He actually is primarily a man with a message. And that message is about God. It's about the cosmos in which we live. It's about his own divinity and cosmic uh, royalty and the reality of our brokenness and neediness. Yes, Jesus does mind-boggling miracles, but these are confirmations of the message, not the main event. Thus, you can basically guarantee that if a crowd ends up near Jesus, he will teach, though he might not necessarily heal. And so that's what we see today. As a crowd gathers to him, he begins to open his mouth and teach them. And in the midst of his teaching, we don't know if he's teaching when he's sitting down or standing up or if he's teaching while he's on the move. But what we know is at some point, he decides to take a leisurely stroll along the seaside and looking up, he sees a man. He sees Levi, son of Alphaeus. And this man is sitting at a tax booth. Why? Because he's a tax collector. And this is the first thing that we have to deal with in our passage that Jesus would look up and call out to a tax collector. Because this is not our IRS. You know, I. I don't know of a people or of a place, a nation, or a city-state where they're particularly fond of the tax collectors, Uh, but at least here in our country, we have kind of an understanding that it's a necessary discomfort. Somebody takes some money from our paychecks in order that we might have a healthy and functional society, in order that the roads might function well, in order that we have certain public safety and public needs provided for but that is not how they would have viewed the tax collector. You see, a first century tax collector, especially one in Israel, would have been associated not with public goods, but primarily with oppression, with excommunication, and with corruption. You see, the first thing to note when we think about these is the oppression. Israel was not its own sovereign territory. Nobody had the right to vote. They didn't have a say in the government. Israel was under Roman rule. They are a part of the empire. And now the Rome did not like to get involved in the nitty-gritty of local government. It was fine just to kind of oversee everything from the bird's eye view. So what they do is they outsource all the things that have to happen on the local level, like tax collection. So they outsource it to a man we historically know as Herod Antipas. Not to be confused with any of the other number of Herods, there's four Herods in the Bible. Uh, This is the last one, so we'll just go with Antipas for short. Uh, His father, just to clarify some things, is the Herod that tries to kill Jesus while Jesus is a baby. So Antipas... Uh, Hailed from a family and a political class of cutthroat ladder climbers. They're always looking for the next rung up on the ladder, always reaching, always trying to strive, always trying to make the next mark, advancing their own social standing. And in doing so, Herod does some good things and some bad things. He does things that are pro-Jewish and things that are anti-Jewish. And really, if you look at the historians, all they really seem to be able to put together is that whatever Herod did, it was primarily in his own best interest and nobody else's. So if he does something the Jews like, it's really because it benefits Antipas. If he does something the Jews don't like, it's probably because it benefits Rome, which benefits Antipas. So... He's advancing for political gain, but generally people in Herod Antipas's position did not like to get their hands dirty with all the extortion work of tax collecting. So they would outsource it again. Now, one of the things to ask is what did the taxes go for? You know, if our taxes go to the maintenance of the roads, and civil protection and hospitals and maintenance of all sorts of things, what did theirs go for? Well, they went to line the pockets of the Roman elite. And primarily, they went to pay for a large military force which Rome had stationed out on the battlefield as well as in barracks all over the ancient world. So what is happening when you pay taxes? You are funding your own oppression You are paying the salary of the soldiers down the street in the barracks who keep you in line such that Rome doesn't get upset. So, the first thing we have to think of is they would have associated paying taxes to a foreign government with oppression. But then, excommunication, there's a religious component to this as well. You see, if you think about it and if you read carefully, you've probably recognized the name Levi before. Why? Because there's Levi's in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. Levi is a Jewish name. So when Rome outsources to Herod, Herod outsources to who? Somebody in the local community. Thus, we know two things. We know Levi's name and the name of his father. His family was well-known. And so these tax collectors not only were a part of the oppression, but they were also a part of the Jewish community they were in. What does that mean? One commentator states it this way. Tax collectors were despised by the Jews because they were considered traitors, because they often were, in fact, extortioners. So what we see in this passage, as well in a lot of others, is tax collectors are simply lumped in with a kind of junk drawer category called sinners which would encompass people like prostitutes, uh, murderers, people who essentially had no outward display of care or concern for the law of God. So tax collectors and those who would generally not be associated with pious civil society. These are people unwelcome at the temple. In fact, an ancient Jewish text uh, of well, of oral traditions that was written down in Jewish day that the Pharisees and other Jewish sects would have referred to, called the Mishnah, uh, forbade the poor from taking alms or financial giving from a tax collector. Because the idea was the percentage of chance that the tax collector obtained that money in an immoral and dishonest fashion was so high that a poor person taking it would have dishonored themselves. So better to not take money from somebody if you know he's a tax collector because that money is blood money, it's dirty money. You can't trust it, you can't keep it. And part of that also falls into the corruption note. Tax collectors were so renowned for their dishonesty and extortion, they habitually made more money than was needed. Here's essentially what we know about tax collecting. Rome outsources to Antipas, Antipas outsources to Levi. And what happens is Herod, Antipas, is told from his Roman overseers how much money Israel needs to pay. And so he looks at all his tax collectors and he breaks them up percentage-wise based off of who has a certain population, how wealthy that population is. And then the tax collector gets a number. Here's essentially how much you need from everybody in your district. But no one else sees that number. So what does the tax collector do? Cranks it up because every amount he takes over what is necessary lines his own pockets. So what we find is this man sitting in the midst of doing what would be considered an immoral occupation, an occupation that stood for oppression, that stood for religious excommunication and stood for corruption of morality in that individual's person. They were hated. But not just as a class, I think we can tell something specifically about how Levi, son of Alpheus, would have been hated. You see, in the first century Israel, names are extremely important to Jewish tradition. What you were named was essentially an aspect of your resume. It told me something about you. You were named for your father or grandfather. You were named for an occupation or a lineage. Everybody's name fed into everyone else's perception of them. So what you were named told me, told everyone who met you, something about who you were. What is his name? Levi. As in the tribe of Levi, one of the original tribes of the Israelites. Furthermore, as in the Levites, the Levitical tribe, which is tasked throughout the book of Exodus with caring for the tabernacle. The tabernacle, for those of you who uh, don't have a whole lot of understanding of the Old Testament, it's this giant tent-like structure which was set up as the Israelites traveled in order to be a place where they formally worshipped God. In the book of 1 Kings, Solomon, the son of David, will finally take down the tabernacle and build the temple. And at that point, the Levites enter into the temple, and they serve God in a formal fashion, taking care of the temple as custodians. So there are the priests who do the, uh, you could say, the religious work. They do the people work. But then there's the Levites. They are tasked with the maintenance of holy objects within the temple of God. Whether he was from the tribe of Levi or whether his father, who intentionally named him, just picked out this name, one thing we can tell. This man was supposed to be destined for religious work. His father, his family, probably have dreams of him working in the temple, have dreams of him serving God. And yet instead, where does he work? In a foreign government, in a pagan government's tax booth by the sea. He's a professional racketeer instead of a priest. Yet to this man, when Jesus sees him, he beckons, follow me. And remember, follow me is not some generic invitation to simply hang out with Jesus. Follow me are the official words Jesus uses when he meets somebody to become one of his disciples. If you consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus in here, what you have heard at some point deep in the core of your being was the whisper of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to follow him. That is what is happening to Levi. He's being called to follow. He's being called to submit his life, to become a disciple, a fisher of men, a proclaimer of the kingdom. To follow Jesus for Levi, though, is no mere simple re-registration of party or shift of alliances. There was much at stake for Levi in accepting Jesus' challenge. The fishermen he called in chapter 1 could easily go back to fishing, as some of the disciples did after Jesus' crucifixion. But for Levi, there would be little possibility of ever returning to his job, of ever returning to his life before If you even think about it, the name Levi being so associated with the Jewish tradition, he would be disowned by the Roman government for following Jesus. But to the Jewish religion, Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but a heretical teacher, which means he would also not be able to return to his family. For Levi, he is cutting all ties when he hears the terms, follow me. Levi, however, evidently gets up and he goes at once. This, of course, might just be Mark's style. We've talked about how Mark is constantly using the word immediately. Things happen rapidly. Actions are always taken. Very few teachings. Thus, we just see Jesus talk. We don't get a lot of content about what that teaching is. The gospel is always moving, but whether that's just Mark's style, what we have to say is that Levi appears to have taken it seriously. Levi does not show much contemplation. Maybe he's heard of Jesus before, or maybe he was within the proximity of Jesus's teaching beside the sea, and he's heard about the kingdom, and he has dropped everything to follow. He's taken a risk, he's made up his mind, and he has started to move towards Jesus. And then our scene shifts quickly. Jesus has been teaching and strolling by the seashore, but now we find him in Levi's house at a dinner party. We are told that Levi and many tax collectors and sinners are gathered with Jesus. They're reclining with Jesus and his disciples at table. This reference to reclining might seem easy to miss, but what this actually tells us is that this is a formal gathering. You see, often people didn't necessarily gather together to eat, they ate in a hurry, they had to go and work, or they were tired after work, uh, and they didn't have a ton of leftovers. This is before refrigeration, so eating is normally a quick process except around what is referred to as table fellowship, except when you have a meal with a certain significance. You have a meal that is meaningful, and the company you have invited is meaningful. And so you slow everything down. You take stock of who is around you and you get in a comfortable position. You recline back as you eat. So the emphasis here is on, or well, the emphasis here is on the act of eating, which might seem odd, but what we notice is that it's highly controversial. In verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not why does he hang out, not why does he spend time. Why particularly does he eat? This, again, is an aspect of the ancient uh, ritual of, temple fe- of table fellowship. You see, in the ancient world, dining together was actually a primary expression of identity and belonging for the tax collectors and sinners who seek out fellowship with Jesus, who sit down at a slow meal with Jesus. This implies that they are interested in the message he brings, that they're interested in the kingdom of God that Jesus has proclaimed. And further it implies about Jesus that he does more than just preach repentance to them, that he does more than just stand at a distance with these sinners and tell them to turn from their evil ways but that he actually seeks repentance in the midst of friendship that he comes to them that he enters into their circles he's not at his house he's at levi's he's not just with his friends he's with levi's tax collectors and sinners the only friends that an outcast has We shouldn't think of this merely in terms of a party underplaying Jesus' intentions. Rather, we should see that his goal is to reach out and offer healing. He offers transformation of their lives. He's not just gathering with these people for an exciting and fun time. And as with other parts of the book of Mark, I find that I am challenged here. I don't know about you, but I find myself reflecting more of the Pharisee often than of Jesus. The Pharisees were one of three Jewish schools of thought in Palestine in Jesus' day. They were the most conservative school. If we lived back in Jesus' day, we would be most comfortable with the Pharisees. Yet their care and concern for the law of Moses had made them go a step too far to where rather than reaching out to people, they now build fences to keep people away. They now, rather than coming to God to cleanse their hands, they try and stay pure by keeping everybody else at arm's distance. And I have to wonder, how often do I ask myself, whether somebody is worthy of my time. How often do I feel burdened by my obligations to those who in our social circles would be lower, either because of age or income or education or occupation? How often do I, in my mind, assess somebody's social cleanliness before getting a cup of coffee or grabbing a meal? I thankfully find myself and my disposition corrected here because Jesus responds to the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners in the following way? Verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. This might take a little time for us to digest, especially if we've grown up in clean, buttoned-down church families. But put bluntly, Jesus is saying that you would expect to find a Savior amongst the people who need saving in the same way that you expect to find a doctor amongst the ill. There's a reason we wash our hands when we go to and come from the hospital, because it's filled with sick people, but it's also full of doctors. It's the same idea with a savior. You would not expect to find him amongst people who had no need of saving. And so I find here in Jesus's response, a tune, a chord that is struck throughout the scriptures that resonates with all sorts of other texts and which I think fills out what Mark means when he says that Jesus proclaims the gospel. It sounds a lot to me like Romans three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is the question of why Jesus, the answer to the question of why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners? It's the same chord played in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might make, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing; it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. We like the Pharisees when we forget that we too are sin sick and in need of a physician. We saw the symptoms of sin and we often self-diagnosed the illness. And then we prescribed the cure ourselves. We tried to medicate our ails with drink and drugs, sex and society, politics and legislation, achievement and ambition, money or matrimony. We were sick. And we often, like many of our friends still today, and probably like our neighbors across the street, sought false cures, telling ourselves that the fever would break. But like the paralytic we met in last week's text, we could not see the true need. We were sin sick. This is the bad news that graciously precedes the good news. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know about you, but I find after Christ has applied the message of the gospel to my sin sick heart, I find that my question is no longer why does Jesus eat, with tax collectors and sinners, but how does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, that's dangerous work. And if you don't believe me, just find somebody with a high school student or the parent of somebody preparing to go to college and ask them. You want your child to be bold with the gospel, right? How would you feel about them spending time with the less savory members of their graduating class? You want your child to proclaim the work of Christ, right? How would you feel about them attending a secular and antagonistic university? You want your child to be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? How do you feel about them entering into areas of sickness and disease at potential cost to them? In order to serve those, our world so easily overlooks and so easily sets away from ourselves. For parents, this is especially harrowing, but similar questions could be put to each of us in our varied positions in life. You know, varied positions, roles, stages of life all come with a cost. They all come with a toll for gathering with people who disagree with us, who don't see the same as us, who have social uncleanliness about them. So I have to ask myself, how do I, how do we love the lost without losing ourselves? The answer to this, I think, is provided when we zoom back from our text and we look just a little bit further back at a text that we've actually already passed through. You see, the section of Mark we find ourselves in today is actually the third installment in a series where Jesus interacts with somebody who is a social outcast for some reason or another. In Mark 1:40 40 through 45, Jesus meets a leper, a man who Jewish law and holy writ had said was unclean, must stay outside of the city gates. Somebody who Jesus as a Jewish person should have kept a certain proximity distance from. And a man who calls out to Jesus asking for healing. You ever think that Jesus could have healed that guy with a word? simply the thought of his mind. But what does he do? He reaches out to touch him no care or concern for what might be unclean. Why? Because Jesus is the contamination of holiness himself. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he cleanses the leper. In Mark 2, one through 12, last week we met a paralytic, somebody who was always at the mercy of others simply to survive. He was a medical outcast and Jesus healed him in such a way that he was able to pick up his mattress and walk. Each of those activities, we don't think about it often because of how easy they are for us. But they require muscle and memory, strength and focus when you've never done that before. Yet we get none of that from the text. This man is healed, restored completely. We're not told about a wobble in his step because his legs are strong. We're not told that he had a look of focus on his face because he had to think about putting one foot in front of the other. His mind just knows what to do when it didn't because it had never done that before, just moments prior. And here in Mark 2, 13 through 17, we meet a social outcast, a tax collector. How can Jesus engage with these people? And how should we engage with such people? Well, if we zoom out, when we rewind the tape a little bit, we find this in Mark 1.35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, speaking of Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus was in the habit of meeting God in the still, quiet moments of his day. Not only that, he was in the habit of manufacturing those moments. He rises while it's still dark, while no one else is awake to get away, to seek God. This might sound like some sort of arduous scale of discipline. I used to think about that when I was younger and would read this passage. That Jesus must have been Somebody of immense discipline, that he got up early, got away, sought God. And then I became a father, and I realized what was happening. You see, it even happened today. I woke up early, while it was still dark. I put my Bible on our dining room table, my notebook next to it. I was focusing on what I was going to say and how I was going to teach and I was praying when all of a sudden, little size six feet touch a hardwood floor and I hear them coming. My eldest, the lovely little blonde who was sitting in that area growling at some of you like a dinosaur, just moments before, he woke up early. Why on earth would a little kid get up early? He's got a nice cozy bed. Why doesn't he stay in his room where all his toys and books are? Why does he come out to the cold living room? Sit in my lap. Because I'm his father. What we need and what Jesus shows us in order to act, interact with those of our world, this is our greatest need of our neighbors and all who God draws near us, is they need us to live in the reality of our Sonship to the Father. You might not be mourning people, that's fine. But what your neighbors need, what the people who Jesus reaches out to need, is Jesus' relationship with his God. Jesus' relationship with his Father because it's love of the Father, not mere discipline, that gets Jesus out of bed, out to the desolate place, and into prayer. We too must live in the reality of our sonship if we will be empowered for ministry. In closing, I just want to point out a few quick things about this text and what we can take from it. First, Sinners do not need to clean themselves in order to come to or be recipients of God's love. I don't know about you, but I have found as I am a Christian, this is an increasingly harder thing for me to believe, not less of one. We do not have to strive to become worthy, we do not have to have a glowing resume. We become worthy by responding to the call to follow and having Christ's life substituted for ours. As one commentator put it, the new thing about Christian doctrine is not that God saves sinners. No Jew would have denied this assertion. Rather, the new thing about the message of Jesus is that God loves and saves them as sinners. This is the authentic and glorious doctrine of true Christianity in every and any age. A few weeks ago, we sang a lyric which has struck me and convicted me. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. We have to walk in the door as broken, because if we try and put ourselves together, we'll never enter. Second, by the very condition of some people's lives, they find that Jesus is more or less obvious. And we need to have grace on this. This is most likely true of many of our friends and family and neighbors. The comfort of our lives and the busyness of our lives is a therapeutic band-aid over the sickness which resides deep in each of our souls. We need to pray And we need to be near. We need to ask God that he gently crack the malaise that so many of our friends and family and neighbors are living in. Which leads me to my third point. Building on the two previous, we ought to be prepared for when God does providentially make that band-aid fail. It will be hard. And we need to have had existing relationships with those who are suffering, who are confused, who are anxious, in order for them to even ask us. We need to meet them with open arms, open hearts, open homes, and open Bibles. Fourth, by eating with sinners, Jesus does not condone sinful lifestyles, but attests that these persons are capable of transformation and redemption. Sometimes we're afraid to engage with the explicitly sinful people around us for fear that we might be seen as accepting them. It's interesting to me that Jesus has no fear of this. He's not concerned with justifying himself to the Pharisees. No, don't you understand? He already repented. It's cool. I'm in an evangelistic relationship with him. No, simply... The physician is found with the sick. And fifth and finally, Jesus does not fear being contaminated. Instead, he contaminates others with the grace and power of God. He is not corrupted by sinners. They do not transmit anything to him. If the object of our religious lives is to believe that we need to be preserved for purity, whether ritual or doctrinal, one tends to look at all others as polluters of our own faiths, our own lives. But Jesus rejects this perspective. Rather, he sees himself as giving out holiness rather than safeguarding the transforming power. It's only that which will turn tax collectors and sinners into disciples. And to do this, we need to be saturated with the grace of God through the scriptures. We need to live in our sonship that Christ, in Christ, we are accepted. We are adopted. Would you pray with me?